welcome to the first ever podcast of Boss Ladies on the Record. Andrea, thank you for being our first guest. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Dr. Andrea Jennison is a triple threat times three. She's a board-certified psychologist, has degrees from the University of Texas, Texas State, and A&M. She's a published academic author and all-around boss lady. So we're thrilled to have her here at Leftway Studios, and there's so many things that we could talk about today. Mm. Just to touch on, like, as far as gender roles or, like, what you come up against have you has that um <clears throat> can you tell me some instances examples or like yeah yeah you know I, I I think by virtue of being in the educational space for pretty much all my life um you do notice that that most of them uh most of those spaces are kind of women-led and women-run you know most most people who teach in in um in public schools are women then when you get into higher education, you notice that it's flipped, that the, the men are in charge hmm. and the men occupy more spaces in terms of administrators and mm-hmm. chairs and deans and the women are in the academy these days, in fact, are entering the academy at a, at a much uh, faster clip than men are these days. Um, but they tend to still be in those um, instructor roles or even adjunct faculty um, and not able to access the power systems mm-hmm. that are um, that are there, and there are many barriers, explicit and implicit, that that um, come up along the way. I think the thing that I was most shocked about when I got to the academy was the um, inequity in terms of pay. You know, I, <laughs> so it exists. Gender pay inequity exists in virtually every university in America. And we're not talking a couple of hundred dollars. We're talking meaningful thousands of dollars that women get paid less for doing the same job of teaching in a university with a terminal degree, you know, and uh, we don't get the same benefits of, of, you know, financial spoils that guys do. We haven't traditionally, and there are a lot of things standing in our way. Talk a little bit more about equity within the educational space. It's it's woven into who who I am, and I, I can't not speak up when I feel like you know there's this injustice or inequity. It's like I have to do it, or I, I'm not being my authentic self. So, mm-hmm. so I get hired, and and uh, or I got the offer, and then I did my research, my background research, of course, and I was like, well, what do you know people get paid in this job? at this university and other Mm -hmm. places. And so I looked at the data, which the Texas Tribune actually has a website where you can go and look up public salaries. So thanks, Texas Tribune. Yeah, Um, thanks, Texas. (laughs) Sponsored by Texas Tribune. (laughs) So so I went on their website and I looked up the, the, the pay scales and I was shocked. I was like, oh my gosh, everyone who has like a female sounding name gets paid less than everyone who has a male sounding name. I'm like with a couple of exceptions where there was a little bit of overlap. But basically, we're talking about two separate bell curves. Wow. Right? The range of pay for females is this, and it slightly overlaps and is considerably below the range of pay for males. It's insane. It is insane. So I was like, well, I want this job. This is like what I've been told to do. This is what I've been told is like the sanctioned path after you get a PhD. This is the golden you know, fleece, this is what I'm supposed to want. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I guess I want this job. I guess I'm looking around and everything else is this inequitable too. So right. 
but I did bring it up. The um, then chair, now dean of the College of Ed, um, asked um, at our very first faculty meeting, he said, does anyone have any equity concerns they'd like to discuss? And I was like, oh my God, my heart was throbbing. I was like, I looked around the room and everyone was kind of silent. And I was like, uh, yeah, <laughs> if you're asking, I really do. How come all of the women are paid less than the men? And it was like, you could hear a pen drop. And he, he just stared me down and was like, do you have any evidence or proof of that? I was like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I did inside. I was like, are you serious? You want me to just bring up the website right now? Of course. Why would I say that? Why would I risk my whole career by bringing that up at the very first meeting I attend? And why would he ask if he didn't? There's, there you go. He just wanted to see who the, who the, mm. where, where it was coming. Yeah. Who had, who had lady balls. Lady balls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I do. And I did. And so I brought it up and then, then I learned what gaslighting was about. Right. That's the moment where I was like, oh, crap, what have I done? So then what happened? So he was like, well, make an appointment with me to come to my office. And I was like, okay. That sounds creepy. Uh, right? Like the producer couch. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I'll come to your office and show you my evidence and my little spreadsheet and graphs that I'd made. And, um, and I was uh, very disappointed that he just sort of mansplained to me, well, oh, this person, they had lots of experience before they came in. And I was like, Dude, I've been working since I was 14, you know, like at a job. Like, what do you mean they had lots of experience? It was just like, blah, blah, blah. I'm trying to justify this thing that I know is deeply inequitable. And do you think he was required to ask? Like, why would he bring that up and then not address it? Yeah, it's all kinds of mind warping. Yeah. Absolutely. He nominally, you know, I don't want to call too many people out, but he's nominally a scholar who is an expert. I say it in air quotes in equity. Mm. So I think. Oh wow. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is how deep it gets. It's just that's all just kinds of warped mind fuckery. Um, mm-hmm. That's how it's felt. You can swear. Okay. Thanks. I'm being subjected to this very inequitable situation that nobody wants to change, and the fact that they're saying that they do, but when when the rubber hits the road, they are not willing to even look at that. You know, and so every single year when I meet with him, every single year I bring it up. I'm like, what have you done in the pursuit of equity this year? How close are you to even addressing the question that I asked you? We should get him if he's like the president of equity. I mean, like, let's get him on the record. You know, I mean, like, has he never been? He's not a boss lady. (laughs) Identify as a boss lady. He's not invited. Nope. There are a lot of things that need to change, but that's that's one of them for sure. What's the difference between being a boss and having power? Power is traditionally defined as having power over someone else. A more important dimension of power that is really rarely talked about is internal power. Anytime I lead a class, I do nine minutes of breathing, visualization, and meditation with them. Why is it that we forget to breathe? Right. Well, we are, we're, we're really stuck up in kind of our, the top of our chest. You know, a lot of us are trying to, you know, get things out. Like we want to share things. And so we're kind of like all stuck up in this energy in, in the top part of our body. But we really need to remember that 
before we can do any of this lofty stuff in, uh, in our mind, in our brains, then we need to be grounded in our bodies first because our body is the thing that carries us around. I think that's a big, big lesson that we could all be taking from this is how important it is to breathe profoundly and, yeah, to have the air clear. Yes. Mm. Thank you. How has your year been? Well, let's see. It's February. Um, it's been going pretty well so far. I um, am teaching at the university, uh, Texas State University. Um, I'm also starting a lot of projects that are artistic projects that are kind of, you know, things that I've been wanting to do for some time, but due to the pandemic and other things, I haven't been able to. So, um, just trying to really balance kind of like the academic life with the artistic life that I really miss. Um, are you guys yeah. in person or are you all online? Um, well, it's a little controversial. Um, the university has kind of told people what they want them to do and um, encouraged people to also make good decisions. <laughs> so. Sometimes those are in conflict with each other. Like the university right now is is back in person officially this week. But um, I train people who work with little kids and I am very um, protective of children. It's, I have chosen to teach remotely and to teach all online because I do have the interests of children at heart. And I know that not all of them have had the opportunity to get vaccinated for whatever reason. Um, could be medical, could be personal, familial reasons. You know, children don't have the choice to make choices for themselves medically. And, you know, they don't have that control of, of bodily autonomy. I'm anchored in a, um, a concern that is ethically bound. So I'm, yeah, that's the choice that I've made. I'm curious, the path that you have had in life, where did you grow up? I grew up here in Austin, and um, just a little bit west of Austin in a geodesic dome that was made of two-by-fours and spray foam. And um, yeah, on some acreage just west of Austin. Um, so it was a very non-traditional type of way to grow up. Uh, my dad was a weirdo kind of inventor who just could not work for other people and just had to work for himself. My mom is a systems analyst and worked for UT for decades and decades. So, um, you know, I had two very different role models in terms of what is expected for work, but um, they were both wise enough and recognized in me, I think, an internal type of drive that was beyond anything that they could advise me about. And so I think my mom let me really do what I wanted to do. And I think that that was a good choice because I was going to do it anyway. <laughs> what is geodesic? Oh, yeah. So Buckminster Fuller created the buckyball, which is kind of like the shape of a soccer ball. So if you cut a soccer ball in half, that would be a geodesic dome. Domes are uh, kind of an alternate building style that some people live in. Yeah. Is yeah. it all one room? Is it off the grid kind of thing? 
Um, it wasn't off the grid, um, but it was all one room when we moved in. Well, my my parents moved out there a few months before I was born, born in 1977. So they moved out west of Austin back when it was, you know, very much more affordable than it is now. So, uh, but they moved onto this property that had nothing but this geodesic dome and a shop because my dad was a metal worker. And so that's where we lived for the first several years of my life. And then my dad built our house out of metal and cement. So I'm kind of like went from like the three little piggies, like from the first house to the, you know, to the, <laughs> to the third house. <laughs> when you think of your childhood, is it kind of a combination of those two houses? Mm. It, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I wrote a paper when I was at UT Austin as an undergrad about this very topic, <laughs> that how, yeah, how that um, combination of just very unique living spaces really spoke to my growing up experience. You know, even when we moved into my uh, the house that my dad built, you know, it was still there and it's just still beautiful and, and strong and, and looks out over this uh, the hill country. Um, when we moved up there, it was because um, our dome had been like uh, pecked by chickens uh, that we had. We, we raised chickens and the chickens had gone up on the on the dome and like pecked it. And because it was made out of spray foam, like their little fissures formed. And then the water, when it rained, came through the little fissures and it started to like corrode the ground. And so uh, ultimately, the long story short is that this dome composted itself and just kind of like fell into wow. the ground. And so my mom was like, we are getting out of this before it literally composts <laughs> like itself. We compost exactly. with the earth. Well, yeah. that's a, I mean, that's a really forward thinking way of building, you mm. know, all the material that we waste and right. things like that. Yeah. You say your parents kind of understood who you were as a person and let you kind of find your own way, do mm. what you wanted. Were you always giving and interested in people and human communication? Where was it that you first got into helping others, helping children? I think I have been that way all my life, um, predisposed to helping people and really caring about, especially the underserved or marginalized individuals and groups. So yeah, I think that does come from just my heart and who I am. Because I didn't have, you know, a ton of great role models to show me how to be who I wanted to be because who I am, I think, is pretty unique. But um, yeah, I uh, I started volunteering really young. That was something that I wanted to do and was valuable. It's still valuable to me. I love volunteering for things because when you volunteer, you know that you really love that thing, right? Mm -hmm. You're just giving of yourself and your time and your vital energy. And so when I started volunteering, I started volunteering um, at the Austin Children's Museum, mm -hmm. at the Austin Nature Center, places like that when I was pretty fairly young. Um, I was like 11 years old when I started volunteering oh. in the community on a regular basis. So, wow. yeah. I yeah. assume you're fluent. Where did you learn Spanish? I am fluent. I'm academically fluent. I'm not a native speaker, but it was spoken in my home uh, when my half-sister, who's older, came to live with us when I was five. My brother was born at that time, and I didn't even know my half-sister up until that point. And then she arrives, and she is from Mexico, and she grew up between Mexico and Dallas. Um, my dad was married to her mom for, I think, f five years or something like that. Um, 
And then he moved back up here. So she didn't really grow up with him. So when she was staying with me and with him, uh, because my mom was in the hospital having my brother, they spoke Spanish, my dad, and she spoke Spanish exclusively almost. And I was like this little five-year-old going like, hey, why don't I know what y'all are saying? (laughs) I really want to know. And I really want to be in on this. So... I was pretty precocious, and and as a five-year-old, asked my parents to enroll me in Spanish classes, so I did start taking Spanish after school. At five years old? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. You knew what you wanted. I did. (laughs) In some ways. That's a drive. And I've studied it, you know, since then pretty consistently through school and got a minor in Spanish at UT Austin. And my my PhD um, is in school psychology with an emphasis in bilingual and multicultural learners. Very cool. Mm -hmm. It started early, like the understanding of language barriers, Hmm. because you had that language barrier and fixed that problem by learning the language. That's a good way to put it. I think everyone has their own language and communication. You know, we all have our ways of communicating. Was there a point where you realized your purpose or like... Or no. are you just Mm-mm. like the rest of us? <laughs> just like, like the rest of us. <laughs> okay. I, I think I'm every day waking up and questioning what I'm here to do day to day, you know, because it does shift. I've had many jobs in my lifetime, and it wasn't a direct line to becoming a professor of, of psychology. You know, mm-hmm. it took me three degrees, you know, decades of learning to come to the end of of an educational line, getting a terminal degree. And they do call it a terminal degree because it could kill you, I think. Um, Like (laughs) PhD almost almost did me in. And um, so, you know, I came to the end of this long line of of what the sanctioned, you know, kind of path was after following Mm -hmm. a really circuitous path before that. And it's like, Wow. Once you do that, once you get to that, to the end of like what's been told you to do, mm-hmm. that is the sanctioned way to do something, then you realize that it's not the only way to do that. You know, I, I didn't yeah. have to get multiple degrees to help people, but to be a psychologist and to train psychologists, I did have to get degrees. So I did. Was there a time that you were up against a lot of resistance and then struggle to be able to teach others? I don't know. I was teaching my stuffed animals when I was two years old. So I think part of me like just really wanted to be a teacher and just kind of knew that I would be a teacher. Um, I think one, I mean, yes, of course, there's many struggles along my path. And uh, I think maybe, um, you know, growing up in West Austin was a struggle. I know it sounds like, well, how can you struggle when you're growing up in this affluent neighborhood of West Austin? Mm-hmm. But like I said, I had this really different experience in West Austin that not other other people didn't have. Um, so I always knew I was kind of a weirdo and an outsider, you know, from the very beginning. And so... Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I think the struggle is to try and... uh, The big picture struggle, maybe, is to try and uh, honor that part of myself and really just, you know, be reverent and respectful of 
my weirdo side, you know, or multiple sides. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and know that, yeah, I don't have to conform to certain sanctioned ways of being or paths to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is always a struggle because you're always hearing messages of what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, no matter how much you do the internal work of trying to be authentic, you know, it's it's hard in this world because we're bombarded by messages about how we should be, who we should be, what we should be doing, who we should love, how we should love them, you know, mm-hmm. everything. So to be... So, to be an authentic person, I think, is a huge struggle that a lot of us go through mm-hmm. daily, and me too. And that comes in part with communication too, like mm-hmm. people's tone and like that's not what I meant, or like the patience of understanding that they didn't have your life and nobody communicates the same. It's, mm-hmm. it's like a Oh, yeah. Communication skills are way underrated. Mm-hmm. They sure are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and also um, just relationship skills. Mm-hmm. Um, I created the Happy Healthy Toolkit, which is my contribution um, sort of of all of the distilled knowledge that I uh, have gained over the years and um, available in English and Spanish. Where Happy, can we get that? HappyHealthyToolkit.com. We want to thank our incredible team here at Left Way Studios, Lisa McNally, Tori Amaya, Tim Curry, Benji Snyder, Jason Jenkins. I've been Kate the Great. Thanks for joining us. This has been Boss Ladies on the record. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, or online. BossLadiesOnTheRecord.com. See you next time.